So, uh, like I said, this morning we're going to end our series on Acts, and I don't know, some of you are in your houses right now, maybe you're like throwing parties and you're high-fiving each other and like chest bumping and like, you know, shooting streamers through the air because you're like, finally, like it's been so long in Acts and I'm kind of starting to go crazy. And some of you are maybe sad and you're going, how could we possibly end a series on Acts right in the middle of the book? Well, because... Any time that as a church you go through an entire book of the Bible, which is generally a pretty good way to go through the Bible, I think, um, you have to pace the way you go through that book of the Bible. You just do. Um, and uh, sometimes when we went through John, for example, people would ask me, why didn't we talk about this one thing that happened in John or this other thing? And I would say, because if you spend too long in a book as a church, then what you're kind of saying is like, it's impossible to really have, uh, to even be able to remember the sort of generally what these things are that you're talking about in this gospel when you take months and months and months and months to go through it. So you want to go through it quickly enough that it actually is like all together in your mind, but we also don't want to go through it so quickly that we don't actually get into the stuff that is talked about on the level that we think we should as a church. So um, that's why I think for Acts, there's so much in it that's so important um, that we're going we're gonna to kind of hit the pause button and we'll come back to it. We might come back to it in maybe six months, I, I'm not sure, but um, we'll... Uh, We'll uh, do our new series and stuff. And so what we've done is we've actually jumped ahead um, from Acts 15 to Acts 17 because this is a great place for us to end this portion of our study in Acts because it's, it's, it's about the church, obviously, and what's happening in the early church, but it also really speaks to and gives us a chance to come back and ask the question of like, what does all this stuff in Acts say to the individual believer about what it actually means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be one of these people who's been changed so much by the gospel? And we're going to see that this morning by looking at Paul and what's happened for him. So I'm going to read the passage this morning. I know there's been a lot of Ed this morning, and I, I cannot tell you how sincerely I apologize for that. But, um, you know, that's just the way it is. So um, you can, I don't know, you can skip this part and read it yourself out loud and then get to the message. But um, I'm going to read our passage, and we'll put it up on the screen. And then I'm going to talk about some specific verses in it. But again, because I'm going to talk about a couple of verses in here, it's really important that we still actually hear God's Word and that we hear it like this passage in its entirety so that we actually know the whole picture of what's going on when we talk about it. So we're going to be in Acts 17 and we're going to pick up in verse 16 um, and, uh, and then like I said it's going to be up here on the screen for you. Uh, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of a foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, said, 
men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor does he serve by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysus and Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. All right, let's pray uh, as we uh, jump into God's words this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible account of this incredible uh, interaction between Paul and the people of the city of Athens, Lord. God, our prayer is that um, we not fall into the trap of merely looking at this as uh, some historical study um, where we learn about things that happened in the past that are maybe helpful to know in some vague sense, but that we see this as like everything in Scripture, that because it tells us something about you and about you redeeming your people, that means it ultimately tells us about ourselves as well, Lord. Would you help us to be open to what it is that we might see in ourselves as we look at Paul? Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So, one of the things that we have seen here is that that in Acts, is that Acts is ultimately a book all about change. Um, It's a book about change, and the reason I say that is because there's a tremendous amount of change happening in the church, right? The, The Jewish people, this cult as people saw, you know, that sort of started out um, from the Jewish faith, and then you have these, these Gentiles coming in, and, and you have everybody having to basically have the environment that they've come to know uh, change around them and have to adapt to that thing. Now, change is actually a pretty big theme throughout the Bible. The Bible wasn't written to tell us all about change, but by nature, anything like the Bible is going to lead to that. The reason for that is because the Bible's ultimately... Um, it, is, it is a book that tells us about God, and it tells us about God's continual uh, pursuit of and rescuing of his people. 
Again and again and again, this God who created his people that Paul talks about is pursuing his people and he is rescuing them from bondage again and again. He is redeeming them and he is finding a way for them. And so as a result of that, um, any person in the Bible who comes to the realization that they are indeed God's child ultimately faces some kind of change as a result of that. It changes them to learn that. We, we, we know that, that the truth of Scripture isn't something you just understand in your mind and then add to the knowledge that you have and go on living with more knowledge, that if you truly understand it and truly accept it and believe it, that it will change you fundamentally. To understand that you are a child of God will change you fundamentally. To see the light, as we say, to understand the truth of who God is or the fact that he has redeemed you, that, that as his child, you um, have wandered away, that you have this propensity to be a certain way, and that he is willing, he, is, he has made effort to redeem us from that, to understand that and believe that changes you fundamentally. To, uh, to follow Jesus required being changed. In fact, whenever Jesus encountered people, or they encountered him really, it seemed, Um, they always had to make some kind of a choice. There was always some kind of a call that Jesus gave. And ultimately, what it boiled down to was, if you will follow me, it's going to lead to some kind of change in your life. It's not change for the sake of change. He's not there just to help everyone get a fresh start or just to help everybody, uh, you know, have some new way of looking at the world. Uh, It's not all about personal best. Uh, when you are with Jesus, he will give you the call in some way or another, and you'll either decide to walk away staying the same person you were when you encountered him, or follow him, but that will require that you fundamentally change in some way. And then what we read about for people who are believers and form the church, even people like Paul, is we read that when the Holy Spirit is in you, that that is going to lead to sort of this continual process of changing. Because uh, the, desire, the, the Holy Spirit is sort of making you more holy throughout your life, and as you allow that to happen, you're going to be changed. And so, uh, sort of an indication that maybe you aren't really living this life filled with the Spirit, that you maybe really aren't following Jesus in the way that you once were, uh, is oftentimes characterized by being a person with sort of a stagnant life. Jesus describes it as a vine that is not growing that's disconnected from a branch. Now, as much as we would desperately like to believe that there is a option in which you're just kind of staying the same, but not getting worse, Jesus never describes it that way. You're either the vine that is growing because you're attached to the, uh, or the branch that is growing because you're attached to the vine, and you know that because you're producing fruit, or you're the branch that is withering and dying because you've been disconnected from the vine. Jesus makes it very clear. Again, there's only really ever two ways to go with Jesus. So in Acts, as the church is happening, we're watching a whole group of people kind of constantly have to reevaluate how they see God, what it means to be a part of this group of people, and how it changes them. But people are changed on an individual level, and it's easy to lose sight of that in a book like Acts. It's easy in a gospel, maybe, to see how uh, Jesus' call might affect your life individually today or tomorrow, but to look in Acts and go, what does this say to anything but how we do church or how the church functions or why the church is here? Well, we look at people like Paul. Paul's story is laid out for us in Acts, and Paul's story is one of profound change. 
In fact, when he describes what it means to follow Jesus, he is continually saying again and again about how he was before and how he is now, but then he also talks throughout his epistles later on about the way that God keeps challenging him and keeps growing him and changing him. What we see here in Athens is an incredibly good illustration of that. And what we're going to look at this morning is three very simple things about what Paul did that show us what it looks like when a person is changed by the gospel, okay? When you are changed by the gospel, then you will do these things. And what we're going to look at is this. What first did Paul see when he was there in Athens? This cultural, intellectual center of the world at the time. What did he see when he looked at that? And then we're going to ask, how did Paul feel when he uh, was in this place? What were the feelings within him? And then finally, what did Paul say? And the reason that we're looking at these three things is because we're not all called to be the way that Paul was specifically. We're not called to be like other people specifically. One of the mistakes we make when we look at the Bible oftentimes is we think, oh, um, I'm supposed to admire these people in the Bible and try to be like them. Uh, really what we're supposed to do is, is look at maybe, maybe what made that person that way, the way that the gospel or that Christ or that God their father made them that way and say, what does it look like for that to be in my life? So we're going to say, what does a person who's been changed by the gospel see? How do they see things? How does a person who's been changed, truly changed and is being changed by the gospel, how do they feel? when they see these things, and ultimately, what kinds of things does this person say? These are the kinds of things that we should see and feel and say. Without a doubt in my mind, the overwhelming majority of people who do not profess to be Christians in the world today have a fundamental misunderstanding of what Christianity even really is about. The overwhelming majority of the people who are not Christians fundamentally don't understand what the gospel's about. And that is not because, simply because, no one has told them. It is just as much probably because of the fact that so many people who sort of talk about this gospel message, this Christian message, maybe are people who aren't actually characterizing it the right way. Or maybe it's people who aren't actually being the right way with this message, and the result is that it communicates something that's confusing. A person who is truly changed by the gospel will show it the way that Paul does. So the first thing is this, what did Paul see? We're going to look at the very first part of this, and this one verse, we're going to spend most of our time talking about this one verse because of how much is in it. We read in Acts 17, 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. You see, Paul went into Athens, which is known at the time as really this central place of intellectual uh, and, and cultural learning and understanding. Uh, there aren't places like this anymore in the world where there's like one place. And honestly, because of uh, the Roman Empire's conquest and because of um, the, what had happened in the, with the Greeks at this time, um, the Romans had allowed um, Athens to basically remain the way it was before they were conquered by the Romans. But um, So it isn't quite as glorious as it once were, as it once was, but it's still the place that everybody goes to 
to, uh, to discuss and to talk about the ideas behind all of the things that matter the most in life. That's why if you take a philosophy class, you're going to learn about Greek philosophy. You're going to learn about guys talking in Athens, people talking in Greece, because that's where people went in the world. That's where people went in the empire to talk about the things that mattered the most. Paul finds himself waiting for some friends in Athens. And as he's there, he looks around and what he sees in Athens, and this is huge, this is important, what he sees in Athens is kind of the best that the world has to offer at this time, right? This is kind of like if you went to the, like the Smithsonian, um, or you went to the Library of Congress, or you went to Washington, D.C. If you wanted a tour of all the greatest places in America, maybe you go from Times Square to, uh, to, to the Library of Congress and to Washington, D.C., and you, you look at some of the sites of our nation's founding, and then if you go to, uh, you know, places like maybe Harvard or places that are, you know, these well-known institutions of thought, um, if you went around to all these places that we think of as like, oh, that's a, that's a, that place represents something big, right? It's like they had all those in one place in Athens. And so you go to Athens, and you look, and you talk to people, and what you see there is this is all of the stuff that we figured out up till now. You know, and it says in the passage that these were people who were constantly open to new ideas. They always wanted to hear a new idea. They always wanted to hear something new, something different. They weren't closed off to it. They were like, hey, we're all about learning and understanding and everything. And when Paul walks in and he sees these, uh, because it was a creative place, it was a cultural place. There were artists here. People were, uh, people were you know, getting inspired here as well as just discussing things. People were wealthy. You saw the signs of that there. So what he saw when he went to this place, the place that had the best that the world at the time had to offer, that civilization, this is the best that we've come up with as people trying to form a civilization together all the time, be better at it. What did Paul see? He saw a city full of idols. Now, it says that some of the uh, people that listened to him when he started talking, when he started presenting his message, were there were some Stoic philosophers that particularly took interest in what he had to say and some Epicurean philosophers that took interest in what he had to say. Now, I promise you I'm not going to get into a bunch of that stuff and philosophy and everything because um, as fascinating as that might be to some, that would probably put other people to sleep. But I will just say this one thing about this one group. The Epicureans, the people who followed Paul, um, are known as the founders of hedonism, right? So, you know, they're pretty fun people to be around probably. And uh, they, I'm sure there's some connection between togas and hedonism and what you would see happen in American universities one day. But these guys, the Epicureans, are they're the founders of hedonism. And when we think of hedonism, we don't properly really understand it the way that it was intended to be, and even the way that people would say that hedonism works today, right? It's easy to say, oh my gosh, the hedonists, they're just the people that party all the time and indulge in bad things. They, they ruin their lives because all they care about is pleasure and foolish things. Why would those people even have philosophers? Well, hedonism was started by philosophers, and they resonated with something Paul said. The reason for that is because as much as hedonisms are always seen as sort of these like crazy party animals, that um, Epicurus, the man who founded this school, was constantly trying to clarify to people that is not what we are about. In fact, what we are about is simply trying to find a way to live the best possible life with all of the knowledge that we have up till this point. Um, in fact, in one, in one quote where he writes to a friend, he clarifies this point. He says this, 
When we say that pleasure is the end and aim, we do not mean that pleasures of the prodigal or the pleasures of sensuality as we're understood to do by some through ignorance, prejudice, or willful misrepresentation. By pleasure, we mean the absence of pain in the body and of trouble in the soul. It is not by an unbroken succession of drinking, bouts, and of revelry, not by sexual lust, nor the enjoyment of fish and other delicacies of luxurious table, which produce a a pleasant life. It is a sober reasoning, searching out the grounds of every choice and avoidance, and banishing those beliefs throughout which the greatest tumults take possession of the soul. What Epicurus is basically saying to his friend uh, Minoetius, I don't know, what he's saying to his friend is this. He's saying people try to make it sound like we're all about partying, but we're not. We're basically trying as hard as we can to live the best lives that we can by avoiding pain, by making wise choices, by, uh, by, you know, spending our money in the place that will bring us the best life ultimately in the long run because they believe that this life was all that we have. That is fundamentally the way that the majority of people that you ever meet will view the world. So we take this view. This is the view that most of us, most people have by default. Yeah, I want to live the best life. When, when people are um, finishing up high school, thinking about college and what they want to do with their life, they're thinking about this, most people. Okay, what do I do? How do I get to a point that can lead to that? When people are finding people, finding a person to spend their life with, thinking about starting a family or not starting a family, they're making that decision usually based on this. What's going to bring us the best life? What's going to bring me the best life possible? How do I don't want, I don't want pain that I don't need, obviously. That's why we hate trial. I want things to go well. I'm willing, most people would say, I'm willing to do some hard things now so that I can have some better outcomes later, right? Because that ultimately is what it's about, to say I want to live the best possible life. This is the philosophy by which most people live their lives today. What we do is we just sum it up in other ways. You can go, to, you can go online to Williams-Sonoma. You can buy this. You can buy a sign, 140 bucks, says live, laugh, love, right? There it is. That's it today, right? This is the best way to sum up this way of living now. And um, now I'm not saying it's wrong to have this in your house. If you have this in your house, that's fine. But I'm saying uh, the reason why this resonates with so many people is because this is what it means to be a hedonist today, to say, here is what life is ultimately about. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to find joy in my life, and I'm going to find love and love others in my life. And I am going to do those three things. Those are my priorities in life. I am really going to live. I am really going to enjoy this life that I live. A life without laughter, a life without joy is a life not worth living. And I am going to love. I'm going to love people, and I'm going to be loved by people in the way that matters most. This is what matters to most people. These were the people who heard Paul and something resonated with them. The Stoics as well, something resonated with them. When Paul went to Athens and had all of this stuff in his field of vision, what he saw when he looked at all the culture and all the learning and all the wisdom and all the understanding, when he saw all of the, all of the creativity and everything, his, his words about it could have led him anywhere in the city, but where did they lead him? They led him to the Areopagus, which is... Uh, translated literally to be Mars Hill. It's the place of the idols. 
ultimately what Paul sees when he looks at this place. When he looks at the best of the world is he sees idols. A person who is changed by the gospel fundamentally will look at things differently. And they will look at things and they will look at what is at the actual root of that thing. Why? Because what Jesus continually forces his followers to do is to not get caught up with this thing in your life, but to look at this thing in your life. To not fixate only on the actions in your life, but to look at your heart behind those actions. To continue to try to ask the question of what is really causing this thing. And so when Paul looked at this city and at these people, and therefore at the leaders of the civilization, what he saw at the root of it was idols. A world filled with idols. These idols represented so many different things. This hilltop was covered in them. Money, intellect, philosophy, science, nature, sex, pleasure, national pride. Many of the idols were simply there to remind people of who their leaders were and how great their nation was and what it meant to be devoted to that place. Things like art and culture, things like fertility, which ultimately meant family. Some of the most worshipped gods at the time, idols at the time, were those of fertility. People wanted to have babies. They wanted to have families that grew, and so they worshipped these idols. Paul knew because he had been changed into a person who looked at the world, and he saw through all of the things in front of him, all the conversations taking place, all the current issues, all the achievements, past all those things to the very root of those things. To Paul, every culture, every gender, every class difference, every ill of society was secondary to something else that matters even more than that thing. Paul looked past all these things and he saw that the real power, the real drive behind most of what he saw is idols. The things that we all really want. Ultimately, at the root of all of this stuff is a deep need for money, is a deep need for love, is a deep need for pleasure, is a deep need for a family, is a deep need to be the smartest person, is a deep need to be the most creative person. A person who's changed by the gospel knows that God has created us to be fulfilled within him. And so without him, what are we? We're little idol-making factories. We are people who worship all kinds of other things. We desperately need these things because without God, we are not complete. We're fundamentally like without the thing that we need. What it means to be changed by the gospel is to be somebody who instead of focusing on and fixating on all of the other things in life and in the world, we fixate on and focus on the actual roots of all of those things, even in ourselves. That doesn't mean that the Christian is indifferent to all the things that go on in the world. It doesn't mean that they don't care about all the things that go on in the world. But it means that we won't think that the way to show people to Jesus is through all this other stuff. You can't ultimately lead someone to Jesus through, uh, through intellect and through with money and um, through these other things that they love. You can't give them something that they love and then hope that that will lead them down the road to Jesus at some point because if that thing is their idol, then that is the thing that they care about ultimately. 
that the way to see the world is this. Paul saw these idols everywhere. One of the hardest things for us to see, leave everybody else out of it in our own lives, is the things that we idolize. The things that we are prone to lift up and say, that is the most important thing to me. I've been in Bible studies with people where they just very flat out say things like, man, if God took a child from me, that's it, I'm done, I wouldn't follow him. I mean, that's it, like I've told them that. And they're very comfortable saying that. Uh, people have said things like, you know, I, I don't know what I would possibly do if I, if I lost my job. I, I don't know, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really know, like, if it wasn't for, or I can tell. I, I can, you can even tell. It's kind of one of those things where everybody else in the room can tell. You know, if you ever want to know what your idol is, I always say just ask, like, somebody close to you, what, what is my idol, you know? Uh, no one ever asks anyone that question because uh, they don't want to know the answer because uh, usually it's kind of obvious, It's so hard for us to see these things within ourselves. But unless we're willing to see and address these things in ourselves, unless we're willing to look at how they affect the people around us, we'll never really be able to speak to those people with the gospel. To be a changed person means that you see those things instead of all the stuff. Why am I saying this so much again and again and again? Because the fact is most of the books you read will not point out people's idols to you. When you turn on the news and it tells you what's wrong with the world, it will not point out the idols behind the things that are really wrong with the world. When you hear from a politician who talks about what they're going to do to help or to fix or to change things, they are not addressing fundamentally the idols, the root, the things that really are wrong with the world and that are going on. When you think about how to help, how to raise your own kids, um, so much of of something like that, um, you are off base if you don't understand the fact that they themselves uh, might hear you talk about Jesus. I will say one of the biggest ways that I've seen Christian parents shoot themselves in the foot in parenting is you talk about Jesus and then you live for all these other things. You live uh, uh, for a lifestyle that you desperately have to maintain. And what you show your kids is that Jesus is the thing we talk about, but all of this stuff is what we really enjoy and find our security in. Well, it's no surprise then that as they grow up, they say, what I want, what I need, what I have to have in life is all of these things or is this kind of a life. Some parents lift up knowledge and academics. Some parents lift up athletics and achievement. Parents will jump on any opportunity to show a child that they can be the best in the world and set apart by being good at a certain thing, but still talk about Jesus. And in the end, when that child grows up, what they feel is a hole inside of them that says, if I don't fill this by being something huge and distinct, that the, people, that the world sees and recognizes, I'm a failure. Jesus doesn't factor into it. Paul looks and he sees idols. And like I said, it doesn't make you indifferent because how did Paul feel when he looked at these things? It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. It was provoked. This word, there is a lot behind this word provoked within him. And it doesn't just mean that he got angry, and it doesn't mean that this is one of those verses you get to use as an excuse to go off on people and, you know, like, get, like lose, lose your temper and say all kinds of mean things to them. Because, look, Paul was provoked, so it's okay if I'm provoked when I see things that make me angry in the world. No. To be provoked 
is a word that has like a ton of stuff behind it. Uh, it means that your heart is broken. It's, it's mostly translated uh, as an idiom in most languages. And so basically what that means is you have to find a saying in that language that reflects this visceral feeling and say that's what it is to be provoked. So to, uh, provoke. so to say like, if some, some would say like his heart or, or his stomach was on fire. Some cultures would say it that way. Other cultures would say his heart was broken by. Other people would say he was enraged by, right? Or his head was like dizzied by, right? All of these are phrases and ways that different people and cultures would communicate what it is to just be so emotionally overwhelmed by what you see that you have to respond to it and speak to it. The, 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 the truth of the matter is that we all have this propensity to either be one extreme or another. We are either very passive, and our default is to be apathetic towards the things that we see in the world, or we are emotional and reactive, and our, and our, our instinct and our default is to react to things strongly, right? Emotion or logic, right? Um, I ignore things, I don't react, or, I, or I, when I address something that I care about, I address it this way. Um, the truth is that a person who is changed by the gospel, as Paul has been, is somebody who is going to get pulled back to the center. If you're a person who has a tendency towards apathy and towards ignoring things, and you've turned that into what it means to be mature, maybe what it means to really care, like, oh, if you really care about someone, if you really love a society or culture or group of people or whatever, then you'll just choose to not get worked up about the things that you see there, Right? That's the way that I say to do things because I'm a logical person with no soul, is what somebody on the other end of the spectrum would say, right? If you've been changed by the gospel, what does it do to you? It pulls you more to the center. You begin to be provoked by these things and react to these things, and you say, I, I, I lie awake at night. I am bothered by these things. I'm unsettled by these things, not by these people, not by this, uh, by this culture, not by this situation or this thing in society. I am provoked by the idol that is being worshipped. I'm provoked by the false God, the idea that someone thinks that that thing can actually fill the place in their life that God can. It provokes me out of my cold, detached sense of, of, of ignoring and being passive because I've been changed. And the person over here is this like volcano of reaction, maybe. Uh, The way that the gospel changes this person is it pulls them more to the center. It pulls them more to being like, well, wait a second now, right? Uh, because I'm not just getting mad and reacting and getting enraged by things. I'm actually thinking enough to go, but what is at the core of that thing? What is at the root of that thing? What is the idol that is being sought after and worshipped that is being led to that thing? Paul was not against all of these things. He was not upset at all of the intellect and the things that he saw in Athens. He was not upset by the culture, the art. In fact, chances are Paul was so provoked because he saw a lot of good and value in the things that people were doing here in Athens. This was a really impressive place. He would have probably had to completely write off all of Western culture in order to, uh, in order to you know, feel that way. 
And Paul is the man who's known for going and bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to the people who are this culture. He probably liked a lot of what he saw. And what provoked him was going, you know what really makes me upset and bothers me and makes me feel hopeless, maybe even, even a little bit sick to my stomach, is that of all of these great things that I see at the root of these things is just a pursuit of stuff that leads to emptiness and nothing. It's idols. They're all just worshiping these idols. This is why the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, and one of the most confusing of the Beatitudes, he says, blessed is the, one who, the man who mourns, for he'll be comforted, right? Why, why are you blessed if you mourn, right? Well, because if you look at the world and you are led to grieve by what you see, how do you, what do you grieve for? Do you grieve, you grieve for someone that you love, but that you have lost, right? This is what it means to feel the way a person feels when they've been changed by the gospel. Uh, this great pastor, Tim Keller, that I, um, that I think says this very well, he, he makes the point that the opposite of, I'm sure he didn't come up with this, but I, I've, I've heard it through him, was that the opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. The opposite of loving someone is not being even angry with them. It is feeling indifferent towards that person. A lot of people would say that what turns them off about the church and about Christians is either that they don't care about what's going on in the world and other people outside of their group, or they care way too much, and they're like zealots, right, about those things. They're against everything. They're fired up about everything, right? That's because the majority of people who probably strive to live out this thing called Christianity and what it means struggle between these two extremes. And what we see with Paul is we see that, that the opposite of loving is not to just be, uh, to, is not to just be like uh, even angry by the things that you see and unsettled by the things that you see. It's to not care at all. And what is the solution to um, a lot of what people say is wrong in the way that Christians react to things or the ways that we feel led to react to things? It's not to be less of a Christian. It's not to be less devout in the way that we live, which is probably, if you were to ask, like what probably most of the world would say. It is to be more devout. It is to be more Christian. It is to actually try harder to do what Jesus would have done, not less. That that will lead you to be somebody who feels the way that Paul feels, to get stirred up by this stuff. The last thing is, what does Paul say? What he actually says is important, and he says a lot of stuff, and I'm not, we're not going to cover all of what he says, but I will just say this, uh, most of Acts is communicating the gospel, or at least up till this point, it's communicating, communicating the gospel to Jewish people. And so there's all this Old Testament stuff and all these things, and you keep going like, yeah, we get it, we get it, we get it. And they go back, oh, back in the God of Abraham, and then Moses, and then jo Joseph, and, and, and the dream code or whatever, right? And they cover all that stuff, and it's like, we know, we know, we know. Why do they keep saying all this? Because they're, they're talking to Jewish people about the gospel. Well, this is Paul talking to the secular world. And what he says is pretty short, and it's incredibly like, profound and insightful. He, he has to point out certain things to these people. So we read, so Paul standing in front of them in the midst of the Areopagus says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, 
What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he says to them, oh, I can see that you're very religious. And I guarantee you the people of Athens are like, no, we are not very religious. We are not here because we're religious people. These are just, this is the hill where we put all the religious statues. And because we're always open to new ideas and we believe in better safe than sorry and that the ignorance, you know, the law is no excuse, we're going to have a statue for any God that we don't know about, that we don't understand, because we don't want him to punish us, right? So what he's saying to these people, kind of ironically, is like, I mean, you could literally go to the most secular gathering of people today and make the same statement that Paul's making. I can see that you're very religious, right? I mean, I have talked to um, some atheists who I could go, I could see that you're very religious, and they would probably be like, what are you talking about? I'd be like, you are more passionate about this thing at the root of what you believe than maybe even most Christians that I know are about this thing in their faith, right? He says, I can see that you're very religious, because guys, guess what? The root of all of these things that you're pursuing, all of these amazing, great, awesome things, the root of these things is your worship of something, You worship intellect. You worship understanding and enlightenment. You worship creativity. You worship success. You worship fertility and and family. You worship the idea of good government. You worship Rome and its emperor. I can see that you're very religious people, so much so that you have this unknown God idol. And so I've got good news for you guys. I can tell you who the unknown God is because the God that I come to tell you about is an unknown God to you. And ultimately what he says is he tells them this whole, his version, the secular version for them of of who God is. And it's incredible. He says, you know, this is the God that created everything. You can't put him in a statue. He made you. He made you all from one person. And he talks about how this God knew, uh, this God kind of, you know, planned out the days of your life. And this God caused all these things to happen in the world around you. And he did this all for one reason. And the reason is this. And he says in verse 27, that they, all the people of creation, should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. This is incredible. He's saying God has created the entire universe, the entire planet, all of us. He has created us for one reason, that we would be with him. And because we're separated from him, then all of it now is aimed at one thing, that we would, he says, find our way towards him. He knows that these are people who are seeking. They are seeking things. They're desperately looking for something. And he says, you are feeling your way towards something that ultimately brings you the best life. And what that thing is, is God. Because this is is what we're doing. We don't just look for God. We feel for God. In fact, if I described most people searching in their life, it is not an intellectual one. It is a a feeling-based one. It's an emotional one. And what he says to them, and this is the part that I think, again, most of us really struggle to see, is what Paul says is this. He says, God is actually not very far from each one of us. If you were to go to the most secular place in society today, would you tell people that? Would you say to people, God is not far from you? Or would you say to people, you could not be further away from God right now? I mean, isn't that interesting that instead of saying to them, he's, he's here on the top of this mountain with all these idols and all these other things that compete with their idea of God. And what is he saying to them? He's not saying, 
you guys, right here, this mountaintop with all these idols, all this stuff, man, you could not be further away from God. You could not have further to go. I'm going to tell you right now, you guys got to get started today because you've got a long journey ahead of you if you ever hope to find God. No. He says to them, God is actually not far from each and every one of us. Someone who is changed by the gospel will have this message, not just for others, but for themselves, which is that no matter what, because he is a God who pursues, he is not far from you. It is so difficult to see others in the world, especially outside the church, and not feel that they are far from God and that they have to do so much to ever get to a place where God could really be a part of their life. We feel hopeless because of that. Sometimes we find some kind of sick satisfaction in knowing people are far from God. Or we, we try to communicate to people just how hard they're going to have to work to get anywhere near God. When in truth, God is pursuing and God is near. That for the Christian who is continually being changed, who is continually repenting as they see these things in their life. What is the message to the Christian? What is the message to one another in church, no matter what we're going through? God is not far from you in this, even this. What is the message for myself when I feel hopeless, when I feel discouraged? It is that God is not far from me. This is a huge thing that a person who is changed by the gospel, like what we see in Acts, like what we see in Paul, is somebody who will see that God is a God who is not far off from even the worst of sinners, even the, even the most lost people, or even themselves. The, 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 the message of the Jewish people tended to be the opposite of this. They tended to make people feel, because of, of everything that they did, make people feel like if they wanted God, there was so much that had to be done that they couldn't have been further away from him but we're the people that are close to him. And what does he say to them in the end as he says this? And this is like honestly one of the most like compelling, powerful, beautiful statements in scripture. It is that for in him, we, we live and we move and we have our being. You see, uh, the people of Athens were living and moving and they were trying to live. They, they were trying to exist. They, the mo- majority of them believed that the best thing that we can do in this life is devote ourselves to enjoying it as much as possible. Being a successful, creative, intelligent, wealthy, um, fertile as possible. And that by doing that, we could really live. And he says, all of you are so desperate to live, to move through this life and to have your being. And he says, it is only in God. It is in God that you will truly live. It is in God that you will truly be able to move about through this life. It is in God that you will be able to be yourself. A person who is changed by the gospel like Paul is, is somebody who will see that it is only in God that we can live and move and have our being. As we worship and as we, as we end um, this morning, that is the thing that we reflect on. That is the thing that we think about. We think about the fact that the reason a Christian is continually changed through the Holy Spirit is because the idols still exist in our lives. We still are drawn and pulled towards these things. We still want to pursue these things. And we need to know and hear above all else that it is only in God that we will live and move and have our being. That when a job is lost, 
that that's okay because in God we live and move and have our being. When a diagnosis comes, it is okay because in God we live and move and have our being. When, when a baby doesn't come or when fertility doesn't happen or when life goes completely off the rails and you find yourself, um, I don't know, homeschooling when you plan on sending your kids to school for a year, that's okay because it is in God that you live and move and have your being that when your kids grow up and they don't quite turn out the way that you wanted them to or thought they would, that it is okay because in God you live and move and have your being, that when church isn't the way you have grown accustomed to and you, you almost feel like you need it to be, it is okay because it is in God that we live and move and have our being. Let's pray. Father, Paul shows us what it means to walk into even the best of places and to see what's really going on, Lord. He shows us what it means to feel the things that Jesus himself would have felt and what it is that we should say to address that, Lord. The reason why um, it seems so scary to many of us that, well, I'll say this, the reason why it seems so scary to the apostles um, that they had to live without Jesus was because when they were with Jesus, he was the one that told them what to look for. He was the one that saw things. He was the one that showed them how to react to things. They were kind of watching him going, oh, if Jesus gets upset, then I guess we'll be upset. And if he's happy, maybe we'll be happy. And Jesus was the one who said things. And that even though he says with the Holy Spirit, we're empowered to do even greater things, that, that we still struggle because we say, but, but how do I see the things around me? How do I feel about what's going on around me? What do I say, Lord? I feel like every month of my life I have had to ask that question. What do I see in this thing happening in the world? How do I feel about this thing happening in the world? What do I say to this thing happening in the world, Lord? Would you, through your Holy Spirit, help us begin to ask those questions the way that Paul did, Lord? It's in your name that we pray, amen.